guys, this is Jeannie. And this is Sky. And welcome, welcome to, to Grave. Grave. <laughs> Hi everyone. Welcome back to Grave with Jeannie and Sky. And it's Friday, so I hope you all had a great week. Um, I had a great week. We already talked about Thompson almost dying, or Sky almost dying, and my pants ripping. Um, so it's been it's been hit or miss for us. Um, equally as bad, by the way. It's been a week. You know, Thompson has almost died three times by three different incidents. My pants have a hole in them. You just can't compare the two because they're so equally horrible. They are. They are. <laughs> Truly devastating. Truly devastating for both of us. Um <laughs> But today is Friday, like I said, which means it is a genie episode, so you guys get to listen to me talk. I am going to, as we have been doing, I'm going to tell you the legend, the folklore, the, the, the fake news um, of this story, the myth. And then I'm going to go in with some facts and tell you guys the real stories. And this one is going to be a little different. This one doesn't line up perfectly. I feel like our other stories have. Where you have a, a story that has kind of evolved into something it's not. And it's all based on a, a, a singular story that goes through where real facts have happened. Yeah. This is a merging of, like, multiple different fires that have destroyed the cities. Multiple different trials. They've all just taken a bunch of stories and just moshed them together with some fake news thrown in there for this story (laughs) for the rumor for the fake news for the um, legend about the curse of the witch's cask and the charleston fires we're gonna go all the way back all the way back to the very beginning which is 1670 and i say all the way back to the very beginning because for those of you don't know who don't know charleston was founded in 1670 so back in 1670 you had charleston proper you have the city and then outside of charleston off to the side a little bit was an area known as wapata and wapata had a huge forest it was a pine forest and in this forest was this neat little isolated community they left they decided they didn't want to be a part of charleston they wanted to live life on their terms and charleston left them alone they were like okay you do you girl you go out there into the woods and live your life that sounds great yeah get it and this community was actually a community of witches even better they lived their little witchy lives sign me up and within the first year they ended up exiling a witch they kicked her out oh shit no one knows why no one has an answer to this but they say her name is emily dickerson okay not to can be not to be confused with a um not very well known author I don't even know. I I was kind of hesitant to bring up her name because I'm not sure if any will, any of you will actually recognize it. But it's Emily Dickinson. <laughs> I don't know if that Never rings any bells for you guys. Nope. <laughs> it was I couldn't find any actual information on Emily Dickerson outside of her name being in this story. So she was kicked out, and they she made her way into Charleston because she did not think she could survive, and probably rightfully so. In a pine forest. Or in any forest by herself. Yeah, that's fair. So she made her way into the city and she opened up a little seamstress shop on King Street. And Cute. she did pretty well for herself. She was not um, balling out of control by any means, but she was making a living. She was 
paying her rent, her taxes, and eating. And in 1670, what more could you ask for? Really? (laughs) So, she really had a pretty decent life. However, a few years later, an unknown woman was caught trying to poison her husband. And she was brought in. I believe there were a few other people who were also brought in. And then Emily Dickerson was dragged from her home and placed in jail for helping, aiding in this murder plot on this husband. There was no evidence against her, by the way. None. There was nothing. She was not involved in this. She didn't. There were no ties to her and this woman. Nothing pointing to her having anything to do with this murder. Okay. Here's their evidence. Some people claim to have dreams that Emily Dickerson was helping women poison their husbands. Oh, that's irrefutable evidence. It really is, especially (laughs) at the time they called it spectral evidence. And if you look back into the Salem witch trials, those little girls who were convulsing and having hallucinations that the people they were accusing of being witches were pinching them, pulling their hair, hurting them, that they had seen them poisoning them in their dreams, and they would come to their dreams and threaten them and place curses on them. That was the majority of their evidence in the Salem witch trials. So this is around the same time period, and they took that very seriously. All except one man. And his name is Nicholas Trot. Now. Relation? Maybe? Oh, you know what? It's Trot. Is, is your guy's name Trot? Yeah. I thought it was Tut. From last week? Nope, Trot. Trot. Okay, maybe they yeah. are related. Maybe. Hmm. Possibly. I do know that this gentleman gets very confused with his uncle um, named Sir Nicholas Trot. The sir makes a big difference, so I'm not sure where the confusion lies. But his uncle was actually the governor of the Bahamas. And he was like this famous governor who, from what I've read about him, his fame lies in his fights against pirates. What a badass. Yeah, so he seems pretty cool. So Nicholas Trot... Trot was not that cool. No. (laughs) (laughs) Our Nicholas Trot is the chief justice in Charleston. And he resided over every important case for like a 20-year time period. And when he heard this, he thought, okay, guys, you're kind of pushing it a little bit here. I can't take your dreams as solid evidence to convict and murder a woman, essentially. I just, I can't do that in good conscience. But he didn't know what to do with her. I don't really know where his confusion lied. I just, that's how the story goes, is he... Oh, he didn't know what to do with her. He was kind of like, do I let her go when people think she's guilty? I don't want to convict her and try her. He put her in the provost dungeon, which is underneath the exchange building, which is a building that is still standing. And you can tour the original dungeon. But that was the jail before the old Charleston jail, which we'll cover at some point. But it was the jail where they would place people. So he just put her in there. He was like, you know what? I don't really know what to do with you. 
people think you know you are you I don't think witch. you're guilty but you know what we'll put you under the jail no, we'll put you under there you are a witch oh, the there's no strong <laughs> evidence i don't feel like killing you i don't know i'm just yeah. i'm just gonna put you in there where i don't out of sight out of mind and this got back to england and england was so appalled by the treatment of this woman that they were like we don't treat people this way which is obviously a lie <laughs> false but okay so we need to do something about this so they sent someone out to investigate and now just stop and think about how long this is back this is they do not have airplanes they are on sailboats essentially like ships yeah. with sails and so they are someone got on a boat either they traveled themselves or they sent a letter that went onto a boat that got from the Jews had to get to England. England. That's going to take like seven to nine months at a minimum. Yeah. And then they have to make the decision to send someone back, wait on a ship to leave, get on that ship, and come. Because it's not, you're not at a train station, folks. Like, there is not a schedule where right. every day at 3 p.m. a boat is leaving for Charleston. And then get back. So this woman, a, two years, is just hanging out in the dungeon. Until her savior from London comes. Now, here's a part that really kind of annoyed Trout. Or Trot. Here's a part that really annoyed Trot. Is he felt like he did her a favor by not convicting her and killing her. Because that would have been the sentencing. Right? It wouldn't have been, okay, yeah. you, you're a witch. You used your, witch, your witchiness to murder someone. Or to attempt to murder someone, and here's a slap on the wrist, you're going to spend two years in jail and then be on your merry way. No, it would have been death. And so he I feels like... I would have preferred death over <laughs> sitting underneath the goddamn jail for two years. Oh, no, so the, the dungeon was the jail. And above that is the exchange building, which has a wild history in itself, but above was a, an exchange building used to exchange things. Yes. Um, it was heavily used okay. in the Revolutionary War. It was used during the Civil War as, like, an outpost for war planning. Um, but the dungeon has was for a long time used as a jail. Okay, okay. So. Still. Still. <laughs> Two years. Great. Two years. Yeah. Um, and a favor. As a favor. You say. Like, I did something nice for you. And now I'm embarrassed. Oh because, okay. <laughs> Nicholas Trot was the most educated man in Charleston at the time. He was also the most Did powerful. he know his ABCs very good? He did, in multiple different languages. Oh, shit. And he received his doctorate of law. That's how it was written, where I read it, from Oxford. He came from a noble family. And he was appointed by the king to be the chief justice of Charleston. So he is, like, very powerful. He has heavy influence, and he's very intelligent. So then some someone is sent over from London to kind of say, excuse me, sir, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you have to let this woman go. <laughs> and he's like, you're, you're coming here, and I have to listen to you? And so he lets her go, and he's not very happy about it, but he doesn't do anything. She just goes back to her life, back to her little seamstress shop, and continues living. Damn. And she was furious. Rightfully so. So she's like, you know what? You thought I had a plot to murder someone? Watch this, Nicholas Trot. Watch me. 
and she gets caught. There are no details exactly how she got caught in her plot to murder him, but she was caught. They had the evidence, and this time, Trot was furious. First of all, I was, okay, let's, one more time. I was nice to you. Did murder you. You embarrassed me. So kind. Because someone was sent to tell me how to do my job, and now you have the audacity to try to murder me. So... And I'll do it again! How be (laughs) dare. In the words of my best friend, Aiden. How be dare. (laughs) So Trot says, okay, I see you trying to murder me. You are going to burn to death. And disproportionate response, my dude. <laughs> very disproportionate. This is also, you know, this, these are the people, these are Anglo-Saxons. They love to torture someone to death. They want to hang you. They want to crush you by rocks slowly. They want to stretch you. You want to be stretched to death? No, thank no. you. But this woman, he decided, was worth burning. So he burned her on the corner of Hazel Street and East Bay Street. And East Bay Street, fun fact for all of you out there, has my favorite coffee shop. But that's not part of the story. So she, they set it up there. So you know how they set this up. They have like the mound of rocks with a lot, like a big log essentially in it or part of yeah. the log that they've cut up. And they wrap her there with rope to keep her up there and they light the bottom on fire and so it said as the flames are licking her feet so they're not even she's not even on fire yet the flames are licking her feet she looks out at the crowd because this is an event people have come to watch her i'm sure this is not a time when you could sit down and watch reruns of golden girls you had nothing else going on you were coming to watch (laughs) someone be lit on fire and so the flames were looking at her feet. She looks out at the crowd and she screams, I will do to you what you have done to me. And boom, she's gone. Not disappeared, engulfed and flamed, oh. and immediately oh. burnt to ashes. Shit. And this is where the story kind of gets... I've heard two things here. The first one I've heard is the people were shook. They were silent. They were like, uh... Uh, and then they just leapt into action. They knew what they had to do, which they started looking for a container of some sort to put her in. And then another group of people were gathering up her ashes, and they found an empty wine cask. So they started putting her ashes into this cask. They sealed it, and then they dipped it in hot wax completely. Once the wax had dried, they went out to the Cooper River, and they buried her in something called plot mud. And let me tell you, a friendly mud. It gets on everything. So they buried her in there. Her little cask. Yeah. And then they kind of just go on about their life. They're like, we took care of it. The other story that I've heard is that as soon as she went up into flames, everything went into flames around her. And she caught the city on fire. And that's when they went into action of oh my gosh, this happened because we killed this witch and she has cursed us, so now we have to hide her ashes. So I've heard two versions. I don't know, like, how, how, how does... How do, how do we get to that place? Like, as a population, watching a witch burn, at no point does it cross my mind, oh, we need to gather her ashes and put them in a bottle 
cover it in wax and bury it in mud. Like, that doesn't occur to me at any point in this. I don't... Maybe it's a difference in the times. I think so. <laughs> and I think, you know... Okay. Um, I think it, it has to be a difference in the times, a difference in knowing, you know, ev- everyone thought everyone was a witch. You knew how to kind of, like, keep them out of your home and how to um, protect yourself against curses. And so that was just a reaction to them being cursed. And now, who knows? It... It could be very likely that everything lit on fire and then someone, a wise person of some sort, whether it be, you know, a root doctor or another witch came and advised like, hey, in order to stop this and keep it from happening again, you have to do these things with her ashes. Right. Okay. So her ashes, either way, whether the town caught on fire or it didn't, her ashes were buried in the same place in the story. Okay. Okay. And then everyone forgot about it until 200 years later in 1861. We're into the Civil War now. The Civil War started in April of that year and we're in December. So on the 10th of December in 1961, their Civil War is going on. There's a, there's a building in Charleston. It's called the Powder Magazine. It's a pretty famous building, still standing. At the time, it was not the Powder Magazine. At the time, it was a privately owned wine cellar by a very wealthy family in town called the Montagos. And it, they just used it to store their very extensive and very expensive wine collection. Because, I mean, back to Lavinia Fisher, there's not enough room to dig a cellar into the ground. You can't- do underground. Yeah. 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 They had an underground cellar. And they decided to let some soldiers sleep in the cellar, use it as a as a bunk of some sort where they all lay on the floor. So there's a Tennessee soldier who's sleeping in there on the 10th of December. And he has a dream that a woman wearing a black cloak, kind of like hunkered down with her hood up, he couldn't make out her face, comes up to him in the wine cellar and leans down. And whispers, Soldier, I will make you wealthier than your wildest dreams. But first I need you to do something for me. Then in his dream, she led him to where the cask was buried. In the plot mud off the Cooper River. And she told him, I need you to dig this up and bring it back to the wine cellar. But do not open it until I tell you. And she just disappeared. And when she disappeared, this unnamed Tennessee man woke up. And he was excited. He was ready to get that money. So he immediately took off to get a cask. He goes to the area that he recognized. He dug it up in a few different locations. And he found the cask. Jumped for joy and rushed back to the wine cellar. And he just kind of hid it in there among the wines. And then went on about his day. But all day, he's got this thought in his head. What could be in there that is going to make me so rich? Not connecting that nothing in there is going to make him rich. It's the witch who's going to use her magic, if she even follows through, to make him wealthy. So later that night, he decides to have some of his host wine. They're not going to notice. They have a whole building full. And... It just gets to be too much for him. So he decides, okay, I'm just going to open it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I'm just going to do it. Like a (laughs) child peeking at his Christmas gifts. Mm -hmm. 
So he opens, he takes off the mask, and he breaks the seal, and he opens the wine cask. And immediately, on the corner of Hazel and East Bay Street, a fire starts. And it is the largest fire in Charleston history. Oh, damn. The end. That's the entire story. There we have it. A witch was burned. She cursed the town. And then when her cask was opened, she came back. So there are some things that are true here. And Nicholas Trot is the focal point of the majority of the story. And I'm going to go into the real story. So like I've said, they've taken two separate cases and a bunch of different fires and just put them all into one story. So Nicholas Trot, I've already listed all of his accomplishments and well-to-do family. So that is all true. He also wrote a few books, and they recently sold. I looked one up to see if I could find, like, a PDF. Like I did for Peter Nielsen in the Lavinia Fisher case. But you can get an original copy. It re- recently sold for $1,300, which I thought, for what it is and how old it is, it's fairly cheap. It really is. So... He's written a few books. I mean, fuck that guy. Yeah, not a great guy, but he wrote a few books. What I did read about this, where I got some information and parts of the transcript that he actually wrote, was from another book, and it was written by Mark Jones, and it's called Wicked Charleston. I wanted to take a second to shout out Mark Jones' Amazon author bio. I felt like from reading it that we could be really great friends. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but Mark Jones, he lives in Charleston with his wife, who's also an author, and they have, like, six cats. So he's living the dream, truly. Love him. (laughs) Mark Jones, in his Amazon author bio, the first line reads, Mark Jones is an eighth-generation South Carolinian and possibly his own second cousin. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I relate to it. I have questions. (laughs) I was like, man, me too. (laughs) Except I'm from Tennessee and not from South Carolina. But same, you know, who knows? Who knows? (laughs) But like mood. Yeah. (laughs) So Trot did preside over the trial of a woman who people claim to be a witch. Not a lot is known about her, except that she was arrested and charged for making several people ill and killing two due to her charms. And she was held for 15 months in the provost dungeon before she stood trial before trial. So he spoke to the grand jury about this. And his path that he chose to take for the trial wasn't really trying to prove that she was a witch and that she killed these people and made all these people sick. He took a different approach. He went about trying to explain to the rest of the Supreme Court that witches are real. And if you believe in witches, then sh- it makes sense that this You have to believe happened. that she is a witch. Yes. Oh, okay. So I'm going to read you some verbatim statements here. And please forgive oh, me, boy. because there's a lot of hints and thences and therefores. <laughs> All right, hit me with it. Okay. So he says in his opening statement for this to the grand jury, or to the Supreme Court, he says in his opening statement... To the Supreme Court. Now, because this is a matter that will come before you, and being a thing of great difficulty, I must therefore pray your patience and diligent attention till I speak something largely to it, 
We live in an age of atheism and infidelity, and some persons that are no great friends to religion have made it their business to decry all stories and apparitions of witches. For if there be such creatures as witches, then there are certainly spirits by whose aid and assistance they act. And by consequence, then, there is an, uh, another invisible world of spirits. That there is such creatures as witches, I make no doubt, neither do I think that they can be denied without denying the truth of the holy scriptures. Now that the scriptures do affirm that there are witches and magicians is evident from so many places that time will not permit me now to recite them to you. I shall therefore only produce two or three testimonies from them and vindicate the truity of the translation and the sense of them that yea deniers of witchcraft have endeavored to put upon them. So essentially he's saying there are so many unbeliefers here. So many adulterous people who deny religion, and they don't think witches are real. But if you believe in anything in the scripture, and any of the spirits in the scripture, then you must believe that witches are true, because they talk about it. And he does speak, like I said earlier, several different languages. And so he's saying, mm -hmm. I'm going to translate it to you, so you can get an idea, just give you a general idea. And he did say, here at the end, I just want to say this again, Therefore, only produce two or three testimonies from them. This guy said this and then immediately followed it up with 22 manuscript pages God damn it. of translations <laughs> and evidence from different holy texts that witches are real. So, translated texts from Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And he cited dozens of cases in all holy writings that proves witches and wizards were flesh and blood. Now, that everything that I could find about this trial, which was very little, I even found a roster of every witch trial in the country. And their, the date they were tried, who tried them, and their name. It has the year, his name, and a question mark. In her name spot. Mm -hmm. So we don't even know her name. She's not even... It really felt like this trial was not about her. It was about yeah. him trying to prove that witches are real. And try to make it... and Try to codify these things into law. Which he was trying to codify a lot of things into law. So mm -hmm. from what I've gathered, from what I can find outside of everything that he said about witches is that they didn't really buy it and that she wasn't charged and she was let go. Okay. Because that's essentially the end of the story, unless you want 22 yeah. pages of his translated text about witches. Pass. So, <laughs> there is another case that ties into this. And in this case, three people were accused and arrested for murder. One was Sarah Dickinson. I don't know if that sounds familiar, or if it kind of sounds like Dickerson, but Sarah Dickinson, <laughs> Edward Beale, and Joshua Brennan. The reason they were charged and arrested for murder is that Dickinson and Beale were married, but not to each other. They were married to other people, but they were having a very passionate affair together. They were madly in love. And then... The entire town knew about it. They all heard the rumors. They would all side eye them when they saw them walking down the street together. They're like, we see you and we know what you're doing. 
So when Beale's wife just suddenly died, the entire town was sus. They were like, okay, sure. She just died. (laughs) All right. So after she died, Beale, I've seen a few things about this. I've seen that he was jealous that Dickerson's husband was still alive, even though his wife died. And I've heard other things that that's not the case, that he just kind of, his wife died, and then he turned all of his attention onto Dickerson's husband. And so it started very low-key. It started with trying to embarrass him and shame him by spreading, like, making up and spreading rumors around town about Mr. Dickinson, who his first name is never mentioned, or I couldn't find, at least. And then he very suddenly escalated into poisoning him. Oh, shit. And he did not die. Dick, Dick, oh, Dickinson, shit. he survived. So this infuriated Beale even more. And it's his turn to be like, how be dare? Like, how be dare? I try to embarrass you okay. and I try to kill you and you have the audacity not to die. So he hired a professional, which is where Joshua Brennan comes in. Joshua Brennan was the professional who poisoned him and he was successful and Dickinson died. At this point, they obviously know what's going on. They could tell it's poison, and so they arrest all three of them. They were all tried and found guilty of murder. So Sarah obviously was found guilty of aiding in the murder, as well as Brennan. Beale, though, he was for con- you know conspiring the whole thing. This is what Trot said to him. He said, Consider... You murdered the person, not because that he had offended you, but because you had offended him. You were not content to rob him of his wife and to defile his bed, of which your guilt is notoriously known. But such was your malice that you conspired to take away his life. In charity to your soul, I cannot admit mentioning to you another one of your crimes, which is the murder of your own wife, which I believe in my conscience you have been guilty of. It is true, for want of proof, it cannot be fixed upon you. And then he went on to say something like, God is going to have to deal with this one, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) Trot then transitioned into sentencing, where he said, I must now do my office as a judge, that you, Sarah Dickinson, shall go to the place from whence you came, and from thence shall be drawn upon a hurdle to the place of execution, and there shall be burned to death. And that you, Edward Beale, and Joshua Brennan, shall go from hence to the place from whence you came, and from thence to the place of execution, where you will be severely hanged by the neck until you are severely dead. And God of infinite mercy, be merciful to every one of your souls. Very dead. Very, severely dead. dead. Not just dead severely dead dead. (laughs) i also i just want to let you guys know that i practiced saying that speech that he gave 30 times a day it was so hard to say all of those words that you shall go from hence to the place from whence and from thence to the listen it's not my normal way of speech so it was a little difficult so there are the two stories so you see he did Take what he did preside over a trial of a witch. That is true. And then he did preside over a trial where a a husband was poisoned to death and a woman was burned burned for it. 
So they kind of just mish those two together. And I okay. kind of, so now I want to go back and talk about the fires. Because the fires mm-hmm. are very important here. There are a lot of fires in Charleston. From what I can gather, I have a book. And the book is, I have a lot of books. But this particular <laughs> book is called Charleston, Charleston, the History of a Southern City. And it is written by Walter J. Frazier. And it's a very extensive history. And from what I can find in here, there were 10 major fires in Charleston up to 1963. Most okay. of them they, that's were before that's the a lot of fires, I feel like. Yes. It was a ton. So the first one in Charleston was not until 1697. And you said Charleston was founded in... 1670. So, even if you take into consideration... Of course, the legend doesn't really break down a timeline for us. Right. But, let's say she was kicked out, and that same year is when she was brought to trial for the poisoning, and was placed into the dungeon, was in 1670. But, that would be a lot to happen in one year. I guess it could happen. But then you have the minimum of two years it took for someone from England to get there to release her. Right. But that's still, like, almost a... No, that's more than a 20-year difference. That's almost a 30-year difference. In 1670, which would have been 20 years, the it's the closest population number I could find, so I wanted to notate it. There was an estimated 1,200 people in Charleston, and at the time, it was the fifth largest city in America. So fast forward to 1697, that was the first major fire of Charleston, and it was kind of a boom, boom, boom. So there was an earthquake, which caused some buildings to fall down while, you know, they had their chimneys and all the wood and then fire. And then after the fire, there was a hurricane. About two years later. So they had, this caused, you had the earthquake, immediate fire. And this caused the first legislation for the prevention of fires was passed the following year. You had earthquake, fire, and then as they were rebuilding after the legislation was passed, this really fun thing in September um, came through and it was yellow fever. Oh, fine. It killed half the assembly and half the government officials. And then as they were in the middle of this wave, because yellow fever keeps popping back up, and it pops up during the hottest months of the year, and then during the winter it'll start to die out. So in the middle of this wave of yellow fever, there was a hurricane. So it really didn't have anything to do with her burning. Mm -hmm. She didn't cause all of this. There is another fire that I wanted to talk about very briefly. It was in 1740. At this point in time in 1724, there was an estimated population of 6,800 people. And this one started on a Tuesday afternoon from a Sadler's house. And this destroyed a huge portion of the business in Charleston. 70% of the fire losses were sustained by merchants. This tore down 
a section of Charleston that had all of these merchants that sold their goods, but they had these giant stores of deer skins, rum, turpentine, gunpowder, things oh, that they were selling, shit. and there were a ton of explosions. And there's a guy here who was very affected by this, who I'll mention later at the end where I have some fun facts. But I'm going to save it. But we're going to loop back. Remember the fire of 1740. So another reason I wanted to mention this is this is the first time that it is kind of mentioned, hey, there might be some like supernatural causes behind the fire. Mm-hmm. And the citizens really thought that it was the work of rebel slaves because it was less than a year earlier that the Spaniards were promising slaves freedom in St. Augustine. Or so was the rumor mm. that these slaves at the Stono River plantations had heard. And so there was a giant uprising of slaves. It was actually the largest uprising of slaves until the Revolutionary War. And there were 20 white people who were murdered or who were killed and 40 black people were killed in this uprising. And that's what a lot of people thought. They were like, oh, it's happening again. They're trying to light the city on fire. And as you mentioned, at this point in time, there was a greater number. The black community or the black slaves greatly were a majority. Yeah, they were the majority. And so there was one man, though, who was supposed to be on a boat that actually caught fire on port because it destroyed a lot of the port. But he had been asked to speak last minute. And his name is George Whitefield. He's 26. He was an evangelist. And he was a reformer. He blamed the fire and epidemics on sin and the Anglican church. Mm-hmm. He said that the clergymen were thieves and robbers who do not follow in the footsteps of our true shepherd. And he was also... The man who led the first wave of evangelism in America. So he believed that that was the cause. So the Great Fire of 1861 did start on the 11th of December. It was at 8.30 p.m. And it started from a campfire that was lit by slave refugees. Because this is the Civil War. They're fighting for their freedom. And they've left their plantations, and they are on the corner of Hazel and East Bay Street. So the location and the time is accurate. They're sitting there at night. They don't know why. They mentioned maybe to cook, maybe just for warmth, because it is December. So it's it's not cold. It's like probably 60, 70, 75 maybe. But when you come from 103 and then you drop down, yeah. it feels a little chilly. So, the fire went absolutely wild. 14 homes were initially blown up on Queen Street just to protect two hospitals, the Medical College, and the Roman Catholic Children's Orphan House. And by early morning, the fire had burned down. It burned over 540 acres. It took out 575 homes, not including the 14 that had to be blown up to protect these other buildings. And... Five churches. It caused roughly $5 million in damages, which I did use a calculator to see how much that would be in today's dollars. It would be $156.1 billion. Jeez. In damages. And one of the churches that built down, that burned down, 
was actually the circular congregation, congregational church. And it is the church, the photo that we have for our logo, I took that photo in the cemetery behind this church. So the original church was established in 1681, and it was not at that location. It was over behind the market. So the, there's a big, mar- big long market in Charleston. It's very famous. And if you start on East Bay Street and you go all the way down towards Queen Street, there is a building there that was the original location for this church. But they did decide to move around 1804. They moved locations. And the new building was this beautiful circular church. And it was designed by Robert Mills, who also designed the Washington Monument. Fun fact, the when the church burned down, it wasn't rebuilt until 1888, and it was rebuilt using the leftover materials. So essentially, it just burned down, and they left everything there mm-hmm. for a few years. They had other things going on. It burned down That's in fair. the Civil War. So once everything had kind of passed, <laughs> they were like, you know, yeah. we're going to rebuild this. But they used such the materials they found laying around in the cemetery to rebuild it. And it is still in a circle, but it's not as big. Oh, okay. And this church, I was looking up... I went to their website just to try to get a little bit more history, and I found some really interesting, more modern history that I thought I would mention. So in 1999, they came out and identified openly to the public as an open and affirming church. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, No. Me either. (laughs) I didn't know what that was. Um, I learned. So an open and affirming church means that they fully welcome and embrace all members of the LGBTQA plus community. Hmm. And then in 2018, they took it a step further and joined, they became officially a UCC church. And the best way I can describe it is the UCC is like a union of churches. Hmm. And these churches follow a just peace approach. They are anti-war, and they are pro-peace. They are also, they actively and purposely grow their ministries to include all members of the community. They want all races into the church. They don't care about your sexual identity. They don't care about your gender identity. They actively seek out to have a very diverse community in their church. Okay. They work with the community as well to solve local problems so ucc churches aren't just in charleston they're it's like a union it's an organization essentially that you join and you have to agree to certain principles and you can be all over the country so if your community really suffers from lack of health care and poverty and race relations and education they actively work with the community and try to fix those things they want to help you get the health care you need donate to the church to the school so kids can get a good education and they are a safe haven for anyone in the lgbtqa plus community so if you need a place to stay or if you are seeking safety you have nowhere to go you can go to one of these churches that are in the ucc and they will take you in Hmm. and i was like that's really cool because i've been there a hundred times and i've been inside their cemetery and i have i didn't know any of this no clue huh. so i thought i would mention it because i've literally never heard i've heard quite the opposite about churches yeah <laughs> quite the opposite so there were some fun facts i learned about charleston some of them i knew 
but I did learn a few things about Charleston when it came to researching these fires, and I just wanted to list them out. So back to the fire of 1740. We're going to circle back to that gentleman I spoke of. His name was William Pickney, and he actually founded the first fire insurance company. And it's the first one in America. His motto was Friendly Society for the Mutual Insuring of Homes Against fire, Fires at Charlestown. That, that's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> and after that fire, he lost his business and went completely bankrupt. <laughs> Yeah, there was a bit of a Rough learning curve for him there. To be fair, he yeah, was the first yeah. one in America, so he had, like, he had to figure yeah, it out. There, you was, know? there were some things he, he didn't do. He had to do it by himself. <laughs> yeah. The first modern firehouse that made room for firefighters to sleep upstairs until an alarm sounded was built in Charleston after an 1886 earthquake tore down their three firehouses. The replacement firehouses they built to be very modern and to have these amenities for firefighters to make them so they could get to the fires quicker. And they also have the two oldest working firehouses in the country. One um, on Wentworth Street and one on Meeting Street. And then my last fire fun fact for the city is Robert Mills. He built the first fireproof building in 18 the same guy who built the church and the washington monument built the first fireproof building in 1827 and it's still standing to this day and do you want to guess what the name is john the fireproof building oh oh (laughs) but john is a very good guess (laughs) very original the fireproof building i love it yes it's currently a building where they hold they just store government documents oh that's smart that makes sense yes and that guys is the true and false story of the curse of the witches cast in the great charleston fires we hope you enjoyed it and catch us next time for thompson's surprise episode on tuesday in the meantime follow us on instagram at grave.podcast or shoot us an email at gravemediapod at gmail.com. Bye.